Hello, and welcome to Money Covered, a monthly podcast from RPC aimed at those dealing with complaints, claims, and risk management in the financial services sector. I'm Ash Daniels, one of the co-hosts on this podcast, and I'll be talking to our guests about topical issues relevant to those dealing with complaints and claims against FCA-regulated entities, such as IFAs, asset managers, SIPs and brokers, as well as TPR-regulated entities, including pension trustees and issues for offshore professionals and accountants. Welcome to episode two of Money Covered, where today I'm joined by our guests, Rachel Healy and David Allenson. At the outset, I'd just like to say a very special welcome to David, who's recently been promoted to partner. So a big congratulations to him. Thanks, Ash. It's a pleasure to be here. This month, instead of asking Rachel and David for their specific April highlights, we're going to focus on claims against mortgage brokers, which has been a very hot topic that the team have been dealing with over the last few years. Before turning to that, it's worth also briefly covering some other topics as particular highlights for listeners this month. The FCA has started work on strengthening protection for investors in special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs, following recent recommendations made by the Lord Hill Listing Review. As part of this review, recommendations have been made to liberalise listing rules for SPACs, with the objective being to help facilitate growth in the number of listed equity opportunities available in the UK. The importance of SPACs will no doubt be of interest to DNO insurers and those who insure financial risks more generally. The High Court has handed down judgment in a judicial review brought against the FSCS by investors in London Capital and Finance, with the court finding that these investors shouldn't receive compensation as the issuing of bonds was an unregulated activity. However, also in April, we saw news of the FCA acting on the report of Dame Elizabeth Gloucester's independent investigation into whether the FCA has discharged its functions as regulator. Dame Gloucester's report in 2020 was critical of the FCA's role and concluded that it failed to adequately protect LCF investors. While the FCA didn't accept that its conduct was a primary factor in the losses, it accepts it may have been a contributing factor. The FCA will now review each case and consider whether to make an ex gratia payment to the investor, provided they haven't already been compensated by the FSCS. The government have also launched a compensation fund valued at 120 million, aiming to provide compensation of up to 68,000 pounds per bondholder. Since Rob Morris's recording on episode one of Money Covered, where he discussed final salary transfers, the FCA has published updated finalized guidance on final salary pension transfers, adding to the documentation which is already available for advisors in the final salary pensions area. Now, this addresses standards after October 2018, which is when the FCA introduced revised final salary pension transfer rules, including the transfer value comparator and the appropriate pension transfer analysis. Since Rob's recording, we've also seen the FCA publish its updated guidance for firms on how to calculate redress for unsuitable to find benefit pension transfers. The updated guidance has arisen following the government's decision to change the way that the retail prices index inflation is calculated from February 2030. We'll now move on to the main focus of today, and in a special edition, we're going to be discussing claims against mortgage brokers for the sale of interest-only mortgages. Rachel, now not a day goes by when we don't discuss interest-only mortgages, or IOMs for short, but could you outline for listeners what's been going on in this area? Thank you, Ash. And first of all, congratulations to David. Um, it's a great news for the team and, and a great milestone for him. So what's going on with interest-only mortgages? Well, it's about the sale of interest-only mortgages broadly over the period 2005 to 2011. And it follows the regulation of mortgage business by the then 
Financial Services Authority in late 2004 in the form of the Mortgage Conduct of Business Sourcebook, or MCOBS for short. Now, the crux of the allegations being made against mortgage brokers is that it was negligent or otherwise a breach of MCOBS to recommend an interest-only mortgage when either a capital repayment mortgage was available and or to have recommended an interest-only mortgage without a suitable investment product to repay the capital at the end of the term. Just briefly, an interest-only mortgage is exactly what it says on the tin. You just pay the interest over the term of the mortgage. Then at the end, you pay the capital, which means that you're effectively paying more interest over the term because the capital, unless you make overpayments, is not reducing. So what this turns out to be in terms of allegations against mortgage brokers is that where they have recommended an interest-only mortgage without a capital repayment vehicle, it said that that is effectively negligent. And instead, that the customer should have had a capital repayment mortgage over the property. Or sometimes we see slight variations in that allegation in that the broker is alleged to have recommended a mortgage where no mortgage at all should have been recommended because it said that a capital repayment mortgage, in effect, was unaffordable. Or sometimes it's said against the mortgage broker that they should have recommended that the customer look to a cheaper property because a capital repayment mortgage wasn't affordable over the house they bought, but could have been affordable under a cheaper house altogether. These claims are in very large part being brought by the law firm Pure Legal. But that's not to say that others are not involved and arguably jumping on the bandwagon, including Lysander Law, High Street Solicitors and Quanta Law. Now, perhaps what's most interesting about the approach of these firms is that rather than going to the Financial Ombudsman Service, which would have jurisdiction to hear these complaints subject to, to time bar issues, particularly given that the losses claimed are under the Financial Ombudsman's cap, which would be the lower cap as these acts took place a number of years ago. What we're saying is actually that proceedings have been issued rather than referrals being made to the Financial Ombudsman Service, which is a rather interesting development for those of us in the financial services area who are perhaps more used to seeing these types of complaints go before the Ombudsman. We're currently waiting for the first judgment involving a pure legal claim. That trial was heard in March, and we're hoping that we'll have the judgment by May, which if we do, we'll definitely be covering in the May podcast and also updates via the usual RPC social media channels. But that said, it's not to say that there aren't other publicly available decisions in this area, including a high court decision in a case called Ross and Atanta, which was a summary judgment application, but involved two key issues that repeat themselves across these types of claims against brokers in relation to the sale of interest-only mortgages. Thanks, Rachel. As you say, we're starting to get some judicial comment on these cases. So, David, could you just remind us of what the facts were in Ross and Atanta? Now, this case involved a remortgage of the claimant's home in 2007, and it involved a lot of the issues that Rachel's just mentioned. So, in broad terms, the claimants in this one were alleging that they were eligible for a capital repayment mortgage for the sum borrowed. That would have been more appropriate. Also, they alleged that they were led to believe that they could roll this over to effectively become a lifetime mortgage when they reached 70. And that's important, as we'll come to later. The remortgage was for the sum of £250,995, including fees. 
they had an existing interest-only mortgage of £100,000 over the property. And the excess that they were borrowing was going to be used to clear £70,000 worth of credit card debt, along with around £14,000 of other debts, and to help their daughter with university tuition fees. Some other funds were going to be used to help spruce up their home. The Rosses' position was that the full sum that they borrowed could have been borrowed on a repayment basis. This was despite the fact that the payments on a repayment mortgage for the same sum would have been in the region of £2,380 per month, as opposed to around £1,100. As our listeners will be aware, 2007 was around the time of the global financial services world teetering on the edge of collapse. This then happened in 2008, and the Rosses fell on hard times during the crash. Mr. Ross had been self-employed as an investment manager in the build-up to the remortgage, and he returned to his work as a teacher, albeit on a lower salary. As with many borrowers in this time frame, though, the Rosses did benefit from a sharp drop in base rates, which meant that mortgage payments became far cheaper. This meant for the Rosses that their monthly payments on the mortgage decreased to around £200 per month at one point. At the time of the advice, it was the defendant's position that the Rosses had indicated that they intended to repay the mortgage via inheritances and downsizing their property when they reach retirement. This was recorded in one of the application forms for the mortgage, but in their evidence, the Rosses stated that they did not expect significant inheritance and that they had no plans to downsize. Their case on this point was that they were provided with blank documents by the broker and that they signed these whilst they were blank, only for the broker to fill in the information afterwards. Despite this, the mortgage offer did specifically state that the mortgage was on an interest-only basis and that the full sum would be owing at the end of the term. It also confirmed the need to have a suitable savings plan in place to repay the capital balance, something which is quite standard for these kind of mortgage offers. The interest-only nature of the mortgage was also confirmed in the annual statements that were provided to the Rosses. This was also reiterated to them in 2014 when the mortgage lenders wrote to them saying that the loan would mature in 2020 and the capital would need to be repaid. A similar letter was then sent in 2017. Despite all this, Mr. Ross's case was that he was only alerted to potential IOM mis-selling in around October or November 2016 when he listened to a program on the radio called Moneybox. After this, he inquired with the lender as to whether the term could be extended to beyond his retirement age of 70, as he says he was led to believe was the case when he took out the mortgage. He was told that this was not going to be possible. He says that this was the point at which he realized that he actually would need to repay the full sum that he had borrowed, and he complained to the Financial Ombudsman Service in 2017, saying that he thought he'd been sold a lifetime mortgage, but in fact hadn't been. But this was rejected by the Financial Ombudsman as being time-barred. Following on from this, Mr. Ross instructed our friends at Pure Legal to obtain an expert report saying whether or not the advice had been suitable. He obtained this in November 2018, and this was critical of the advice he had been given. And he says that this was the first point at which he realized that the broker had been negligent, despite his earliest suspicions. A claim was then issued in October 2019, and the key date for limitation purposes on this claim was therefore October 2016, being three years prior. We'll come to discuss the date of knowledge point in a minute. But the mortgage was then ultimately redeemed in around June 2020. The defendant applied for summary judgment and or strikeout, both on limitation and that the claimant's pleadings disclosed no reasonable grounds for bringing the claim and that they had no realistic prospects of success. So it sounds like it's got a similar fact pattern to lots of cases that we're dealing with in the team. But what were the specific issues that arose in this case? 
That's correct, Ash. The fact pattern follows a lot of the cases that we've been seeing from Pure Legal. Uh, one of the key issues here is limitation. And one of the differentiating factors here is that Mr. Ross says he was led to believe that he could effectively roll this mortgage over into being a lifetime mortgage. And that was relevant to limitation. As you well know, Ash, primary limitation has expired in respect of the vast majority of the cases we're seeing here. The majority of the advice was given between about 2005 and 2008. So the initial six years you have in which to bring claim in both contracts and torts, along with any breaches, the statutory duties will clearly have expired. The key question on limitation is whether or not the claimants were aware or ought to have been aware of the potential claim more than three years prior to when they issued. And another key issue here was quantum. Again, we're seeing a lot of claims where claimants are seeking to recover the full capital value of the loan taken out under the interest-only mortgage, and the question was whether or not that would be recoverable. Thanks, David. So a key issue was limitation, given, as you said, the mortgage was taken out in 2007. But what did the court say about limitation? Before I get on to that, one of the things to remember with this is that it wasn't a full trial. This was an application for summary judgment or strikeout. And the significance of that is that these questions weren't decided based on a balance of probability. The burden shifts to the defendant on a summary judgment application, and they must show that the claim, in this case, the claimant's position on limitation, shows no reasonable chance of success. An unsuccessful application for summary judgment, therefore, isn't necessarily indicative of what might happen at trial, where it is balance of probabilities, rather than the much higher bar of no realistic or no reasonable prospects of success. With that in mind, the court did consider when the claimants first had the knowledge required for bringing an action for damages. And what that means under the Limitation Act is material knowledge about the damage, and in very brief terms, that this was attributable to acts or omissions constituting negligence. It's important also to note here that knowledge will include constructive knowledge. Mere suspicion won't be enough, but reasonable belief that you might have a claim will normally suffice. With that in mind, the court came to look at the essence of this case, and the judge noted, and I, I do like this expression, that there was a kitchen sink approach taken to the allegations of negligence here. So lots and lots of allegations were thrown in the hope that some would stick. And they were also noted to be very generic. The basic thrust, though, from the claimant's perspective, was that the defendants had failed to properly advise them of the need for an appropriate repayment vehicle. They also alleged that they had negligently been recommended an interest-only mortgage when a capital repayment mortgage would have been more suitable. And then the potentially key point, the claimants alleged that it had been represented to them that the mortgage could be extended beyond term when the claimants reached 70. The defendant's position on limitation was that the claimants had all of the relevant knowledge they needed to potentially bring a claim at the outset, so when the mortgage completed. Key points being that they knew then that the, or they should have known, that the loan would be payable on term, that the mortgage was an interest-only mortgage, and that they knew when the expiry date was. Now, even though this was a summary judgment application, the judge came very close to accepting that this was sufficient to carry the defendant over the line and for the case to be struck out or summary judgment awarded. On the claimant's own case, they lacked a repayment vehicle, and that was obvious. They also knew they had an interest-only mortgage. This would have brought home to them the fact that they would have to pay a bill of just over a quarter of a million pounds at the term of the mortgage, which would certainly help focus your mind on it. The mortgage was also plainly not a lifetime mortgage, regardless of whether or not the claimants thought it could be extended beyond the term. And if the claimants were not in fact willing to take that risk, being that they would have to sell their home to repay the mortgage or downsize, then that should have been apparent to them at the outset. 
With some hesitation, though, the judge found that the features of this case meant, unfortunately, that it could not be dealt with summarily without the benefit of evidence at trial, and particularly witness evidence. The judge found that the issue of when the claimants knew or ought to have known of the damage here could only really be assessed at trial because, in very brief terms, this would turn on whether the reassurances that were allegedly given to the claimants, for example, on whether the mortgage could be rolled over, would be sufficient to have a bearing on whether they should have realized they have suffered damage. So on that basis, uh, the judge decided that these questions needed to be addressed at trial in full with a full factual picture. And despite coming close, summary judgment was not awarded. Thanks, David. So whilst not a decision on limitations, some helpful commentary. What did the court say about quantum? The quantum element of this was quite helpful for firms who were in the position of defending these claims. There are various ways that you could calculate quantum on a case like this. The majority of the cases we're seeing involve the claimants alleging that the full capital sum borrowed that would have been repaid had they taken out an appropriate capital repayment mortgage, which I think is completely factually incorrect and basically amounts to an allegation that the defendant should buy the claimant a house. For those of you who are familiar with damages in general, you'll know that the basic principle is that a claimant should be put back in the position they would have been, but for the advice that they were given The capital element of a claim like this doesn't constitute a loss in that sense because the capital value of a loan will always have to be repaid. It's not free money and you always have to pay back a loan. That's the same regardless of whether you take out an interest-only mortgage or a capital repayment mortgage. The difference is when you pay it back. I'm pleased to say that the court agreed with my interpretation of this and the capital sum was not recoverable. In fact, they stated that this element of the loss was plainly misconceived. The claimants had had the benefit of the loan and they were asking the defendant, in effect, to pay their mortgage for them. The judge felt that it was absolutely clear that the measure of loss should not include the capital sum borrowed. It was never going to be free money was another expression that the court used. And the judge also reiterated that damages are compensatory and to recover the capital value would put the claimants in a better position than they otherwise would have been. And the true measure was said to have been the difference in the cost of borrowing. So the claim for the capital sum was in fact struck out. So the Atlanta decision certainly looks a helpful one in our fight against pure legal. So thanks for taking us through that, David. But Rachel, have there been any other public developments? Thank you, Ash. There's one other area that's worth highlighting and just to touch at this point on the fact that we're obviously limited to talk about publicly available information on this podcast as opposed to all the other information that we have. If people do have things they want to talk about, they do get in touch. But the other publicly available development is in the area of secret commissions and a court of appeal decision called Wood and Commercial First Business. Now, obviously, this isn't the type of case that David has just taken us through in terms of the normal pure legal interest-earning mortgage case, which is to allege an unsuitable sale of an interest-earning mortgage. This is a different set of facts and a different allegation about the failure to disclose commissions. But it's definitely worth highlighting because for those who have looked at the Pure Legal website, they'll note that one of the areas that Pure Legal say and tout for business in relation to is in relation to undisclosed commissions. So this is quite a helpful case in that area. Thanks, Rachel. So perhaps you could just talk us through what happened in Wood. Of course. So so Wood was actually two separate cases that were heard together by the Court of Appeal. Both were cases where the borrower was looking to rescind a loan contract 
on the basis that the broker who had arranged the loan had failed to disclose a commission from the lender. In both cases, the broker and the lender were the same people. And in both cases, the borrowers had defaulted on the loan and were subject to repossession proceedings. Both were actually farmers, one in Somerset, involving buffalo farming and organic mozzarella cheese making. And the other was a farmer in Cornwall. And the broker had been paid in one case around £90,000 in commissions in relation to three different loans. And in the other case, had been paid a commission of around £2,500. It was accepted on both sets of facts that the broker had not disclosed the commission. But importantly, the broker's terms and conditions referred to the fact that they may receive fees from lenders. So they had actually stated in their terms and conditions the possibility that they could get commission. Great. Thanks, Rachel. Could you just talk us through what the Court of Appeal decision confirmed? Sure. So there were three issues before the Court of Appeal as to whether or not the borrower could effectively rescind the loan agreement and prevent the repossession of their property. The first was a fiduciary relationship required as between the customer and the broker as a necessary precondition to the customer being able to argue that they could rescind the mortgage contract and therefore not have to be subject to repossession proceedings. On the basis that such was or was not required, did that relationship exist? And then finally, were the commissions half secret or fully secret? And that's relevant to what kind of remedy is available from the court. So the first issue was whether or not they needed to be a fiduciary relationship as between the customer and the broker. The Court of Appeal said, no, there is no need to have a relationship categorised as being a fiduciary relationship. What was important was to look at the examination of the relationship between the broker and the customer, and as a result of that, to determine whether or not it included an obligation to be upfront about the nature of commissions and fees, but it didn't not necessarily have to fall within the label of being a fiduciary relationship. The second issue is then, well, was the relationship such that the broker had an obligation to reveal the commission? The court said that that was clear from the broker's terms and conditions, that they owed a duty to disclose their commissions, and that was part of the duty to make a disinterested selection of a mortgage product to put to the client, and that was said to also include an obligation to disclose their commission. And that led to then to the third issue, was the commission half secret or fully secret? And as I mentioned, that comes back to what the terms and conditions said. The terms and conditions said that the broker may receive a commission. So it was argued that as a result of the fact that there was that may wording, that that was enough to have put the customers on notice of the possibility of a commission being paid to the broker. Court of Appeal wasn't having any of that as an idea and instead said that the terms and conditions required the disclosure of the full commission, including the amount. The fact that the terms and conditions indicated a possibility of a commission being paid was not enough. What was really important in this case was actually that terms and conditions in the broker's terms and conditions actually stated that if the commission was above £250, that the broker would explicitly say how much the commission was. As a result of that, the Court of Appeal said, well, you had to tell the truth, didn't you? And as a result of that, the customers do not have to suffer repossession proceedings. Well, from my experience, it certainly sounds like a fact pattern that would interest pure legal. 
But what, if any, do you consider as the read across to pure legal claims in relation to mortgage brokers? So as I mentioned at the start, pure legal website has a number of different areas where pure legal say that they act, one of them being undisclosed commissions. The website says that a broker must act in good faith in the best interests of its client, which means providing a client with a single-minded loyalty, as they put on their website, and that receiving commissions without disclosing the fact that a commission has been received and or its amount may mean the broker has breached its fiduciary duties to its client. One of the remedies is rescission, effectively, to treat the contract as if it was never in place. So first of all, this is an area that Pure Legal are active in. It also has a read across in relation to the fact that we have actually seen a number of claims alleging undisclosed commissions. And so as a result of that, there's a few points that I would say to mortgage brokers to look out for if they are faced with an allegation from Pure Legal about a failure to disclose commissions. First of all, is that failure secret or half secret? That's important to the nature of the remedy. If a commission is fully secret, That means that it is the customer's choice as to whether to rescind the contract to seek recovery of the commission or to look for damages for fraud. If it's a half-secret commission, then that discretion is with the court as to whether and what remedy to provide. So that's quite important. And from my experience of looking at mortgage broker files, the documentation from the lender often discloses the commission so unless there's something over and above that happening, it seems to me unlikely that commissions in these cases will be fully secret. It will instead be half secret commissions, but it's something to look out for because that's important to the remedy. The other point to mention is that there are very different limitation periods that apply to these secret commission cases. The primary position is that it's a cause of action for money had and received And as a result of that, a six-year limitation period applies from the date of which the mortgage took place. That means that this is unlikely that any of the claims that we see for the period of 2005-2011 will be covered as they'll be time-barred. And instead, we're really looking at cases from 2015 onwards, which would be within the six-year period. That's subject to a caveat, which is that Section 32 of the Limitation Act does postpone time running in cases of fraud until such time as the fraud is identified. That's unlikely to apply in half-secret commissions and more likely in fully secret. So it's an interesting area in terms of the types of complaints and claims that Pure Legal say they're bringing. The broader read across, however, to the question and the issue of the Pure Legal claims about the suitability of interest only mortgages probably comes down to the commentary around the fiduciary relationship. The Court of Appeal said that for the purposes of the facts and the allegations that it was dealing with, it didn't have to determine the point as to whether or not the broker and the customer had a fiduciary relationship. But it's quite an interesting question because one of the allegations that we see every single time from Pure Legal is that the broker did owe a fiduciary duty to the customer. So the issue as to whether or not such a duty exists hasn't yet been settled by the Court of Appeal judgment itself and could have some potential relevance to cases brought by Pure Legal going forward. Well, lots to digest there, but thank you both very much for taking us through it and for your time. As you've mentioned, Rachel, we hope to cover the first Pure Legal judgment in this area in May, so do stay tuned for that. But in the interim, also keep a lookout on RPC's social media channels for any updates as and when they come in. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and that you'll join us again next month when we'll be discussing the hot topics in the financial services sector. Please do click to subscribe and be sure to check out our other RPC publications at rpc.co.uk forward slash perspectives. Finally, many thanks to today's guests, as well as everyone behind the scenes at RPC that make this podcast possible.